For those of you that don't know me, I'm Vivek. Kia ora. Um, I'm married to Eliana and we have two kids, Salah and Theo. Um, unfortunately, they're not able to be here today because Theo got another cough. We've had a whole month of coughs and COVID and it's just been non-stop. Um, but here I am today and let's get into it. So as Dan said, <laughs> just FYI, that's not a COVID cough. Um, it turns out I've developed post-COVID asthma. So I'm actually running short on breath. I just took a puff of it before. It'll kick in in a moment and I'll be okay. Um, but as I've considered the series so far, albeit on the podcast, um, two things have stuck out to me. One was Dan's first message, and that was, he talked about why we're called central. He, he said that we're called central because we want to be people who are centered on Jesus. And then following that, Leash spoke about where we've come from and where we're going and talked about this great work of God starting in our own lives, in our own hearts. And essentially, she asked the, they both asked two questions. Who is God or who is Jesus? And the second question, or who am I? And I kind of feel led today to add to this conversation that I feel like the Spirit's been kind of brewing in the background in this series. So <clears throat> I've titled the message, Trusting in a God Who's at Work. And just so you can follow along, I've structured the sermon into three parts. We're going to look at Matthew 16 for the first part. In part two, I'm going to share a little bit about my story. And in part three, we're going to talk about a beautiful practice that was inspired by a guy called Ernest. As you can see, I'm a little bit nervous, so <laughs> I'm just going to take a breath. Pause, take a breath. All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for your willingness to feed us. We thank you for the bread of life that came down from heaven. As we open the scriptures, can you open our hearts and minds and reveal your son to us again this morning? Jesus, our Lord, we invite you to continue speaking to who we are in you this morning. We welcome your redeeming and restoring work. Holy Spirit, come and fill us this morning with understanding, wisdom, and revelation. So to do our scripture reading this morning, my brother from the north is going <laughs> to come up and read Matthew 16 for us. Here's G1. Cheers. All right, good morning. I'm going to be reading Matthew 16, 13 to 23. So feel free to read along. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I'm glad the verse numbers are up there because you can follow along as I've referred to them. But to start with, we're going to completely ignore verse 19. Just don't have the time to unpack it today. So just park that verse on the side. We're not going to deal with it. <clears throat> but to begin with some context, at this point, Jesus had been going around proclaiming the coming kingdom. He had traveled around healing the sick, performing many miracles, and his work had started to attract large crowds. We read in Matthew 14 and 15, the chapters preceding this, that they just fed the 5,000 and fed the 4,000. So it's clear that the word was starting to get around. But where does this conversation take place? Not a rhetorical question. Where does it take place? Yay! <laughs> Caesarea Philippi. You probably have never heard of it because it's only mentioned in the Bible twice and both times in relating to this particular conversation. And it really has no particular significance in the Bible. So I sense that the gospel writers are calling, are locating the scene for us to tell us that this is a moment that Jesus and his disciples we're getting away for a little bit, away from the crowds, pulling away. What we do know about Caesarea Philippi is that it's about two days' journey from Jerusalem. So we find ourselves, after some massive ministry days, feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000, on a little getaway, having a private conversation with Jesus and the disciples. And in this context, Jesus asked them a fascinating question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? The phrase Son of Man here is one of the ways in which Jesus refers to himself. But let's be clear, Jesus knew exactly who he was. When he was 12, at the temple, he said he was supposed to be about his father's house. When he was tempted in the wilderness with the devil, he said he defended his identity against the attacks of the enemy. So Jesus was clear about who he was. This wasn't a question of insecurity for him. This wasn't him trying to, um, this wasn't him having an identity crisis. So what is going on here? 
So the disciples respond. Some say, you are John the Baptist, which is an interesting response because Herod had just had John the Baptist killed. So some people had started to say, oh, I wonder if this guy is actually John the Baptist come back to life. Um, and then others say, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, the things that Jesus had began to do and to teach and say and heal start, was sounding like one of the great prophets of Israel. Right? This is, this is what the disciples would have heard when they were picking up the loaves of fish, uh, loaves of bread and the remaining fishes. This is them working amongst the crowds, and this is the conversation they're overhearing. You getting the picture here? Got you all? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then Jesus turns to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter, as always, responds on behalf of the disciples. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. For those of you that are not familiar with that language, Messiah means the anointed one. There were three positions in the Old Testament where someone was anointed for a task. You were anointed to be the prophet, you were anointed to be the king, you were anointed to be the priest. Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the prophet, the high priest, the king. And to put this confession of Peter into context, this is a massive deal. Israel had been waiting for a long, long, long time. They were expecting this king, Messiah, anointed ruler to come and deliver them from their enemies for 400 years. The last recorded prophetic word was 400 years ago. So there's a lot of expectation that was building up to this point. But I actually want to draw your attention away from Peter's confession today. Even though this is a massive deal, I want to draw your attention away from Peter's confession. I want you to notice Jesus' interpretation of what has just taken place. Blessed are you, verse 17. Oh, next. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus blesses his confession and he calls him by his name that was given to him by his earthly father, Jonah, Simon. And then he says, This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Who's at work here, friends? The Father. And what's he doing? What's the Father doing? He has revealed to Peter the true identity of Jesus. What Jesus seems to have been doing is getting a gauge of the Father's work. How far has the revelation gone, about, gone out about who he really is? And for Jesus, this revelation needs to be a secret for a little while longer. That's why in verse 20, he orders his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That, it says he ordered them. And if you follow along in verse 21, 
there's a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew from that time on. So Jesus, after having been on this big ministry trip, uh, ministering around, retreats, considers what are they actually saying? What's actually, where, where is God at work here? What's he been doing? And then, following Peter's confession, there's a change. And for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them God's true plan. That he would suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. At this point, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's what it says. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You've got to love Peter, eh? One moment, you're the Messiah. Next moment, I'm going to rebuke the Messiah. Like, the dude, man. Um, Jesus responds strongly back to him. He recognises two things that are at work. First, he recognises Satan's work in Peter, and then he recognises his own fleshly interests, his own kind of fallen desires to use the Messiah for his, the way he thinks that the kingdom of God is going to come about. This was only Peter who had realised who Jesus was. Imagine if the crowds, with their combined efforts, if they had got it, they would have, they would have, they would have got in the way of Jesus. And this is probably why often, until the time was right, Jesus is slipping away from crowds, telling people not to tell them who he is, and he's just like this little shady guy <laughs> that is just, you know, he's just hiding away. Um, but the time was not right yet. It wasn't the feast of Passover. Is that making sense? Are you following? So, returning back to verse 18, just follow, bear with me here for a little bit longer. I'm going to get to my point. Um, Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build the ch my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Who's at work here, friends? Jesus. What's he doing? He's giving Peter a new identity. He's just changed his name from Simon to Peter. There's a play on words here in the Greek. The word Peter in the Greek is Petros, which means rock. And the word rock in the Greek is Petra, as in a foundation rock. They're related words, but they both mean rock. And so when Jesus, you know, at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, He who hears my words and acts upon them is like a man who builds his house on the Petra. So Jesus says, I say to you that you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. There's something beautiful going on here, and that is God the Father is willingly speaking into the first question, who is God? He is revealing Jesus. 
He's at work revealing Jesus. And Jesus is speaking into Peter, revealing who he is in him. This is my heart cry. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to know who I am in Jesus. And the beauty is that they are willing, they're at work. They are speaking forth truth. They're undoing the works of the enemy. So imagine if we took those two great fundamental questions of life and we turned them into trusting prayers. Father, I thank you for sending your son. Can you reveal your son to me? Can you reveal to us, Jesus, who is he? What has he done? What's his work? What, is all, what does his life and work mean? Jesus, I thank you for your life and work. Can you speak into who I am in you? Imagine a group of people who are praying this earnestly. Could this look like the church that Jesus is promising to build here? By the way, this is the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. Notice the personal ownership of Jesus. I will build my church. With all the denominations and movements, I think Jesus is just talking about a people who recognize who he is and who are willing to let him reign in their lives. This is precisely the kind of people that the gates of Hades will not overpower. The term Hades in New Testament times just meant death. This is, Jesus is talking about a community that will overcome death, a resurrection community, a community that is living the new creation life. Hallelujah. Amen. So I want to change tech here. We're going to jump into my story, part two. Um, so I was born and raised in India. At the age of 12, my parents moved the family to New Zealand. New Zealand, Aotearoa. <laughs> Most of my time growing up in India was full of love, affection, and belonging to a large family. Both my parents come from families where they're the youngest of five siblings. So there were lots of cousins, aunties, uncles. In fact, we lived in a combined household. So we had people like cousins, aunties, uncles living with us. Um, but we're not your typical immigrant family. And generally speaking, they come from wealthy backgrounds or come from a background of education. My mum is the only person who's educate, who got a university education from my whole mum's side and the other siblings literally had to work to fund her university education. And on my dad's side, we're a couple of generations descendants of the untouchables. You might have, they're the, like the lowest class in, 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 within the Indian caste system. Um, so they come from a pretty humble background. But a few generations ago, my great-granddad came to faith through some missionaries, and one of the missionaries named my granddad Gabriel, which is where I get my epic name, surname from, Gabriel. Um, all that to say, when we moved to Aotearoa almost 20 years ago, 
there was nothing within our background or understanding that could prepare us for life in Aotearoa. It was a shock. For me, this led to a very confusing teenage years. I struggled with my sense of belonging. Who am, who am I in this new land? Um, it, it was me saying the wrong things, being misunderstood, not, um, not understanding how the society functioned. And, and for, for those of you that are thinking, man, why don't you just Google it? We didn't have a computer. <laughs> we didn't have a computer. It was, it was really a confusing time. And even though I'd grown up in a Christian environment, my understanding and relationship with God was more like what the crowds were saying. I knew about him. I was guessing at, oh, is this God? Is this what he does? Is this who, who he is? Um, and when I was 17, I was invited to go to this youth church where people accepted me, loved me, and made a safe space for me to be vulnerable before God. And that's when I had the Peter moment. I'm not going to cry. Um, but that's when I realized that God loved me and that I understood the work and life of Jesus. And so over the next few years, um, or about a, about a year actually, I just, my life just like had all this hope, new life, and I was like, I am a Christian, I'm going to go serve God. And I was so zealous, and I booked a flight to India. I was going to go do mission work in India, and I got there, and God was like, no. It's a, it's a long story, but he, put, he said, no, I don't want you to serve me in mission in India. Um, and I heard him say that clearly to me. And so, confused, I come back to Aotearoa, and to my surprise, I feel completely different. I feel whole, I have this new confidence about me, I know who I am, and what had happened is I'd gone to India wanting to work for God, and he'd been working on me as I was talking to my uncles and aunties and walking in the ground that I was born in, he was rewriting my identity. He was restoring the trauma of my teenage years. Jesus was speaking a new identity over me. He was at work in ways that I did not understand. And I suspect that it's like that for a lot of us. Trusting in a God who is at work is confusing because we don't understand his ways. We want, we, man, I would have really messed up the ministry if I got into it at 19. <laughs> it would have been a bad idea. Like, even now I'm just like, God, help me every day, <laughs> you know, um, but God works in his own way, and he's at work redeeming our stories, like Leash said a few weeks ago. I do want to put a little caveat here, though. I'm not talking about God made me a better person or this gospel that's popular in society of the better self. Like I'm talking about 
submitting to the Trinity and letting its work in our lives. A trusting relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and letting them work in our lives. So that brings us to the last part, practice. How do we practice trusting in a God who's at work? For me, the starting point has to be the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says that faith, which is another word for trust, comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We need to continue to become people who engage in the story of God as revealed in the Scriptures. We live in a time where there is more knowledge about the Scriptures than any other time in history, and probably the least trust in it. I recently read a book by John Mark Comer, Live No Lies. In the book, John spends half the book making a compelling case for the existence of Satan and unpacks his tactics of deception. And then when he got to the solution of, for combating the enemy, I had a good laugh. And John Mark Comer acknowledges in the book that he is laughing at this point because his solution was scripture reading. It was like 100 pages, scripture reading. I just, you still read the book, it's great. <laughs> but today, I feel led to encourage you in another practice. And that is Thanksgiving. Not, don't think of America. Stop. Stop, stop. I was reminded of this practice when I recently attended a funeral of a a man named Ernest. Ernest is the dear uncle of one of my best mates, and Ernest practiced biblical thanksgiving. Just an FYI, I do have permission from the family to share this. Psalm 116.15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. So this is precious to me, what I'm about to share, and I really hope it honours Ernest. Ernest lived a life of many challenges. He was born completely deaf in one year, but that was misdiagnosed late into his schooling. So he was often misunderstood as someone who was not listening. And that was only first of the many challenges. After leaving school and attempting various apprenticeships, He continued to be criticised and verbally abused, which eventually led him to experience depression and and mental health issues, which limited his ability to work and contribute to society. In recent years, just before his death, on top of his mental health challenges, he experienced Parkinson's symptoms, which severely limited his mobility and quality of life. Despite a life full of setbacks, he still found occasion to thank God. And he did it through a simple log in a small 3B1 notebook where he thanked God for seven things a day, every day. I'm going to read you a couple of them. Just take a breath. He's thankful for God's guidance. He's thankful for chiming clock. 
God's provision. Pictures with texts. He's thankful for a holy God. He's thankful for the best caregivers. He's thankful for clean linen. He practiced thanksgiving consistently and faithfully. His funeral, which he had planned himself, was full of hymns and readings that glorified and thanked God. It was beautiful and a challenging reminder to live a life of faith, hope, and love. That things that Ernest will take with him. Thanksgiving can be easily confused with thankfulness, which is often the feeling of being grateful or thankful. In contrast, Thanksgiving is an action we take to express our gratitude or thankfulness. What Ernest practiced was biblical thanksgiving, which is a practice we engage in irrespective of the season we're in or how we are feeling. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew people practiced thanksgiving consistently within their sacrificial system. They regularly offered sacrifices of thanksgiving. It was a sacrifice. The Hebrew people also saw thanksgiving as directed to someone, not just the feeling. They often thank God for creation, for provision, and deliverance from their enemies. Have a look at the bottom of the page of Ernest's notebox. Thank you, Lord. This is like his life vision. Biblical thanksgiving acknowledges God for who he is and the work he has done, is doing, and it serves as a reminder for us so that we do not forget who God is or what he has done. The Apostle Paul exhorts us, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. What might a regular practice of thanksgiving look like for you? Could it be a little 3B1 notebook? Probably moleskin with you lot, but... (laughs) Seriously, seriously, come back, come back. What could it look like? Could it be added as part of your daily prayer rhythms where we just consistently and reliably acknowledge God? I've been doing it in a more like, man, I want to do this all the time because Paul says, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blessings and the closings of Paul's letters, it's thanks, 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 God, you're doing this. Thank you, God, for working in the people's lives. He is thankful for the work that God has done. Thanksgiving opens up minds and eyes and hearts to see God at work. So, I want to close today by inviting you to the table of Thanksgiving. The Greek word for Thanksgiving is Eucharistia, which is where we get the word Eucharist. 
This is our communal opportunity to come together, to give thanks to God the Father for the body and blood of his Son. I'm going to read a little portion from Luke 12, and then I'm going to call us up to partake in communion when you're ready. Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the words of the psalmist, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. This is the table not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time or ever before. You who have tried to follow Jesus and all of us who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because the church invites you. It is Christ who invites you to be known and fed here. Just when you're ready, church.